Once again, good morning. Dads, happy Father's Day. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now last week as we reviewed the end of 1 Samuel and started 2 Samuel, we saw how Israel was defeated uh, in a major battle with the Philistines. Many Israeli soldiers were killed, including King Saul and David's beloved friend, Jonathan, Saul's son. Now after David learns of the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, being a songwriter, he uh, composed the Song of Lamentation, which he called the Song of the Bow. Let's read it, starting with verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and uh, pleasant in their lives. In their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Now, three times in this song, David uses the phrase, how the mighty have fallen. And of course, he was speaking literally of those Israeli soldiers that died in this battle with the Philistines referring especially, of course, to Saul and Jonathan. However, this morning I'd like to make a, uh, a spiritual application from David's song and apply it to the soldiers of Christ. Uh, let's not call it the song of the bow. Let's call it rather the song of the body. And I'm thinking the body of Christ, of course. You know, as New Testament Christians, we are in a war. A war that, although invisible, is still very much real. We are in a war with a very powerful, super-intelligent, hyper-malevolent spirit being known as the devil who commands a vast army of spiritual, demonic soldiers. And the devil and his army, they are determined to destroy your walk with God, your witness for God, and any work that God wants to do through you because the devil does not want God getting any glory. He wants to neutralize us. He wants to take us out of the game, out of the fight. He has a number of ways that he will do that, using all kinds of things. But his goal is, and he's very serious about this, uh, a lot of Christians don't realize, a lot of Christians, I think, are playing games. They have come to believe that Christianity is a playground, not a battleground. But the devil, make no mistake about it, is very committed to winning this battle. Now, Jesus said, against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. That's true, unless we let the gates of hell prevail against us. We'll talk about that more at the end of this message. But the devil is very committed to winning this war, to gaining his objectives. And as we read the New Testament, we see, especially in the writings of Paul, 
uh, military themes and languages used to communicate the reality that God sees us as, as soldiers fighting, listen, a spiritual battle with the forces of evil. I'll give you a few of these. I mean, they're everywhere. Paul said in uh, Ephesians 6, verses 12 and 13, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We are not fighting against human beings. This war as Christians that we are fighting is with Satan and his demons, the forces of wickedness in the unseen realm. Therefore, Paul went on to say, put on every piece of armor God has given you and do everything you can to stand and not fall. We see Paul in 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, You therefore must endure hardship, speaking to Timothy, who was a pastor, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 18, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may, listen, wage the good warfare. I'll give you one more. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, the first part of that verse, he simply says, fight the good fight. And the word fight there is a Greek word, the Greek word agonizomai. We get our English word agony from that Greek word, implying this is going to be a very exhausting conflict. It's not going to be a battle that's won easily or quickly. It's a battle that we will go through the rest of our lives until Jesus comes. As long as we are in these bodies on this earth, we are going to be engaged in spiritual warfare. And sometimes it's going to become so heavy that you're going to have to agonize to continue to fight for the truth. Listen, the New Testament says that God's people, because we are filled with His mighty Spirit, are all mighty warriors who are commanded to fight the good fight of faith for the truth of God against the lies of the devil. Remember we said last week that Jesus said the devil is the father of all lies, and the idea was all false doctrine, all false teaching. Teachings that are designed to take us away from God, to lead people away from God, down the broad path to hell. We are in a spiritual battle, guys, much of it for the souls of the people that we love, our family, our friends. I mean, this is a very serious war, and the devil has very sophisticated lies he will use to keep people away from the truth. Why? Because the truth will set them free, will save them, and he doesn't want that. So Paul says he is a master deceiver. He can even transform himself into an angel of light to deceive. Which means, guys, he can mask his teachings in such a way and his teachers that the teachings come across good and beneficial. You've got people in the New Age movement who are practicing things like transcendental meditation or others practicing yoga. These things provide people with a feeling of peace, uh, empowerment, uh, whatever it might be, but it's the beautiful side of evil, as somebody has called it. It's the hook that Satan uses, uh, the good feelings, the, the, in the all to drag you into the error to keep you away from God. He went on to say that he can even make those who work for him, many of whom are in the Christian world, do you know how many pastors, professors, and evangelists are working for the devil? I'm convinced most of them don't realize that. 
most of them think they're working for God. But Paul says he can transform these characters into look like ministers of righteousness, like they're really working for God. But they are not. They're leading people away from God because, let's face it, liberal professors and pastors are teaching people that the Bible is really not the Word of God. You can't trust it. That Jesus really didn't uh, die or rise from the dead. Many of the, you know, they're, they're, they're coming against all the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith, pretty much. They're working for the devil. They're not working for the Lord. Jesus warned us that Paul and all the other New Testament writers that the closer we got to the Lord's return, the more the spiritual deception would ramp up, therefore the need for God's people to step up their fight against the devil's lies by promoting God's truth. Because again, the truth of God will set people free who are right now in bondage to the devil. Yet, guys, drawing on this battle that we have studied uh, last week, a week before, at the end of 1 Samuel, is Israel lost... This important battle with the Philistines, unbelievers, in their day, I fear we are losing our battle with the enemies of God, the enemies of God's truth in our day. In fact, more and more I find myself lamenting like David how the mighty have fallen. Now look, many pastors and church leaders have fallen due to sexual sin. That's true, that's sad, but it's, it's true. And have had to step down from ministry. Some of these were mighty men of God uh, at one point with powerful ministries. But many others today are still in the pulpit or are evangelists who have fallen in a different way. They have fallen from their steadfast commitment to the power and authority of God's word. Some have fallen due to political correctness and are now embracing things like homosexuality and gay marriage. We've talked about this. We see this going on in many churches where it doesn't matter that God says homosexuality is a sin and therefore forbidden. Many churches, pastors, and denominations have decided it really isn't a sin. Why? Because I don't feel in my heart it's wrong. They have made a judgment on this issue based on what they listen, feel is right. Of course, we all know how reliable the heart is, right? I mean, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Yeah, I want to base everything I believe on my heart, which is easily manipulated by the devil and the world and everything else. They don't feel it's wrong. They feel it's right. It's good. The gay marriage is a, is a moral thing even. I've heard this. Amazing the times we're living in. Even though God's word is just the opposite. Homosexuality, gay marriage, uh, they are condemned by God in both the Old and New Testament. Look, I love gay people. That crime in Orlando, that was horrendous. I think every child of God who really knows the Lord weeps for the families who lost loved ones. We don't rejoice in that. We're trying to reach homosexuals for the kingdom of God. But... Um, God has condemned homosexuality in both the Old and New Testaments. Leviticus 18, 20, uh, Romans 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 10. And you, can, you can pull out the passages. Even though God's condemned it, many people are saying, well, no, we don't feel it's wrong. It, it, we, we believe it's okay. Can I challenge you guys? The spirit of the age is trying to get people, the devil is trying to get people to think with their feelings can I challenge you to fight that temptation? Don't think with your feelings. Think with the Word of God as your foundation of absolute truth by which you judge right and wrong by. And don't fall into the error of many gay activists and their supporters who try to tell us that David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship. Even pointing to our passage this morning to prove it. Verse 26, David said, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. It is very sad that some people 
are so sick and demented in their thinking, they can't imagine two men loving each other in a deep brotherly kind of love that is non-sexual. Look, the Bible says that David was a man after God's heart. And if David engaged in the same kind of homosexual activity with Jonathan that brought the judgment of God down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, God would not have called him a man after my own heart. This idea that David and Jonathan were gay has only recently been put forth by the gay community really in a res as a response to Christians who keep telling them that homosexuality is a sin. You, you don't want to practice it because the Bible says you won't go to heaven and we love you. We want to see you saved. And it's not just a sin of homosexuality. It says adulterers, fornicators, idolaters, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice these things, that's their lifestyle. You're not going to go to heaven. We just want you to know the truth. But this has been put forth recently uh, by the gay community in response to Christians, really, to throw us off our mark, telling us, well, wait a minute now. In the Bible, you had people that were gay. David and Jonathan were gay. I even heard recently some say Jesus was gay. This comes from perverted minds, destitute of the truth, that can't understand, at least with regard to Jonathan and David, the bond of love, camaraderie, and mutual admiration two people can have for each other, two men can have for each other, without being homosexual in nature. But we're talking about how the mighty have fallen. There are many other mighty men and women of God who have fallen from their commitment to the truth of God's word in the name of love and unity. Even if it means we partner with groups that hold to unbiblical beliefs about the nature of salvation, because guys, today, unity trumps truth. And it's called ecumenism. When you jettison biblical truth to partner with anybody in the name of love. I'm not sure that you've all heard of an upcoming event called Together 2016. I recently found out about it. Let me read to you from an article that I read about this. The author says, Together 2016 is an event to be held on July 16th at the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and seeks to unite those of various backgrounds to stand together for Jesus. Well, who wouldn't want to stand together for Jesus? You know, how they present this stuff, you know? I mean, you don't want to stand for Jesus? How evil are you? Well, okay, I want to stand for Jesus, okay? So, you know, you, they, they, they browbeat people into these things to support. The, if you don't support it, something wrong with you. You can't really be a Christian because who doesn't want unity? It says both Christians and Catholics alike will be featured at the prayer and worship event. Together, 2016 is about laying aside what divides us to lift up Jesus, who unites us. Okay, who doesn't want to lift up Jesus? Organizer Nick Hall of Pulse told Christian News Network, We are coming together in historic unity to pray for a reset for our nation. Jesus said that his followers are family. We believe that it's time for a family gathering. He also said in an official statement, It's not about what divides us, but about the one who unites us, Jesus. The world sees the vision. We can change that. The author says this week, Hall announced that, uh, that Jorge Bergoglio, also known as Pope Francis, will be delivering a video message to those in attendance. Hall said, we are humbled and honored by his involvement and are eager to share his message with the crowd that gathers at Together 2016, he told the Christian Post. That his holiness would choose to speak into this historic day is a testament to the urgency uh, and the need for followers of Jesus to unite in prayer for our nation and our world. 
Hall traveled to Rome on Thursday to meet with the Roman Catholic leader, the Pope, and other Vatican officials ahead of this event. During that meeting, Pope Francis said he was just talking to one of his closest uh, advisors how uh, the Catholic Church could work to bring Christians and evangelical Christians and Protestants together with the Catholic Church. The author says Hall also noted that he and Bergoglio would be praying together on Friday. Supporters of the event include the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, the Luis Palau Association, CRU, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Premier Productions, the National Day of Prayer, YWAM, the American Bible Society, and other organizations. Here are some of the speakers. The speakers include Francis Chan, Ravi Zacharias, Josh McDowell, Southern Baptist Convention President Ronnie Floyd, and National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference President Samuel Rodriguez. Music will be provided by Michael W. Smith, Hillsong United, Lecrae, Kerry Job, Jeremy Camp, Lauren Dangle, Casting Crowns, Kirk Franklin, Andy uh, Minio, and uh, Matt Maurer, among others. Now, let me just say this. I don't know if this is an example of the mighty have fallen or not. Some people have said, well, they put this thing together and uh, these, uh, these people had signed on to speak and to do worship. And some of the names on this list I highly respect. Ravi Zacharias, uh, Josh McDowell, uh, Michael W. Smith, Jeremy Camp. I mean, I highly respect these people. And people say, well, you know, they signed on and then the Pope was brought in. That might be. And, and can I just stop and say this? I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. Let me just throw that out there and I'm going to come back to it because I, I'm going to save it for just a minute, okay? But just so you know, I am not a Catholic hater. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I went to Catholic grade school. My wife went to Catholic high school. We were married in the Catholic Church. We love uh, Roman Catholics. We still have many family members that are Roman Catholics. If I was asked to speak at an event like this to promote unity in the body of Christ, okay, I'd sign on to that. If I later came to find out it had been turned into an ecumenical thing where the Catholic Church was invited and the Pope, and now it's billed as Catholics and Christians coming together, I would have pulled out. I would have pulled out. Because I cannot give my name to an event that basically makes Roman Catholics believe they are born-again Christians when I know they are not. Again, one of the worship leaders is going to be Matt Marr. Matt identifies himself as a Roman Catholic, believing it is his calling to work towards the unification of Catholics and, and uh, Christians. He said, and I quote, we've never seen a, a unified church before in the history of the church since the Reformation. Well, there's a reason for that. Do you know you have Protestant pastors, professors, who are saying the Reformation was a mistake? It went too far? I mean, you know how many people died at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church to give us the faith that we now hold on to? A faith that was once delivered to the apostles but got lost for many years, basically? God always had a faithful remnant, don't get me wrong. But the, the Reformers, guys, were Catholics. Martin Luther was an Augustinian Catholic monk who had to break away, who loved the church, but broke away because of the corruption and the false doctrine. He couldn't take it anymore. Same was true with, uh, with John Calvin, who was a Roman Catholic. His dad worked for the bishop or whatever in his hometown. There was a reason for the Reformation. It was not a mistake. It brought people back to the simple truths, foundational truths of our faith. That it's only the Bible, sola scriptura, that we, God speaks to us through. Not the traditions of the church. 
It's only through faith we are saved. Sola fide. It's only by God's grace that we're saved, not through our works. Sola gratia. These are foundational truths that the Reformation brought us back to. But see, in preparation for the Antichrist and the one world religion and one world government, people are being brainwashed into an ecumenical mindset, and unfortunately, and shame on them, evangelicals, many of them, are falling prey to this in the name of love and unity. Not everyone believes this is a good thing, that Christians should link arms with Roman Catholics and set aside major differences that go to the heart of the gospel. One of the men that was interviewed uh, for this article, his name is Mike Gendron. Mike was a Roman Catholic, is now a man who teaches Christians how to witness to Roman Catholics. Mike was out at our men's retreat a few years ago. Here's what he said. He said, Nick Hall either does not know the exclusivity of the gospel of God, or he does not know the Roman Catholic plan of salvation, because, listen, they are diametrically opposed to each other. He said, we're divided on how one is born again. Rome says water baptism. The Bible says the work of the Holy Spirit. We're divided on how one is justified or saved. Rome says faith plus works. The Bible says faith alone. We're divided on how one is purified of sin. Rome says purgatory. The Bible says the blood of Jesus. We're divided on the essentials of the gospel. Rome has other mediators, the saints. The Bible says Christ alone is our mediator. These are not little, small, non-essential doctrines. These are major differences. Gendron said that Jesus himself came to divide with truth and prayed that his church should be sanctified with the truth. He said it was the Lord Jesus Christ who came to divide. He divides with his sword and his gospel. He divides mother against daughter, father against son. Remember he said that? And we must remain sanctified and not united with any who are not born again, he explained. More than ever, we must maintain the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ. What hope does an unbelieving world have unless we maintain the purity of the gospel? End quote. Look, many today who are promoting this uh, ecumenism, coming together with all kinds of people, especially evangelicals and Catholics, are downplaying doctrine. And how are they doing that? They say, well, doctrine divides. Division's bad. Let's push doctrine to the side, and let's just come together in love. See, doesn't the world need to see the church loving each other? Doctrine. Word means teaching. We talk about Christian doctrine. Teaching from God's Word. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. What does the sword do? It cuts. It divides. The truth from error the spiritual from the soulish. Folks, sometimes division is a good thing. If it divides truth from error, the true from the false, Jesus said he came to divide. Today the devil is saying division is bad. You need to come together. That's a very positive message, isn't it? No wonder people are lining up. I don't want to look divisive. And of course, division in the body of Christ over non-essential doctrine, that is bad. I could care less if you believe tongues is for today or passed away at the end of the first century. It doesn't matter to me if I'm pre-trib and you're post-trib. Those are non-essential doctrines, not unimportant, but non-essential for salvation. I'm not going to let them divide me against you because we still believe in Jesus, and on that level, we're, we're true Christians. But when you're talking about division as a result of the truth of God 
and the error of the devil, then yes, division's a good thing. Gendron goes on to say, well, he also stated that he is concerned about the message that this big gathering is going to send when Christians see evangelical leaders involved with an event uh, that validates Roman Catholicism and therefore does not view those in the religion of Catholicism as a mission field. How many people here are ex-Roman Catholics? A good number. A good number. What if the person who witnessed to you was taught that you're a Christian on your way to heaven? Do you think they would have witnessed to you? Why should they? You're saved. If the devil can get people to believe that Roman Catholics are saved, then they're not a mission field anymore. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to partner with them. And what happens to the poor Roman Catholics who don't hear the truth and are made to think that they are already children of God? They go to hell. He also went on to say, this is going to put the gospel off limits to many Roman Catholics who will be at this gathering. And so it will confuse the evangelical church as well, he said. Well, sure. I mean, it's going to confuse evangelicals, especially young believers, to thinking, well, if Ravi Zacharias and Josh McDowell, I mean, these are giants of the faith. If they're teaching that Catholics and Christians were all saved and all together, then they must know what they're talking about. Now, I hope Ravi and Josh, who I believe are good, solid men, I hope they pull out of this deal. Or when they do speak, if they let people have it. Well, I don't think that's going to, if they speak, I don't think that's going to happen. Look, a few months ago, about a year ago, uh, I get Mike Gendron's newsletter, and usually he's talking about how to reach Catholics and all. On this one particular newsletter, I kept it because it was so good. He was trying to, to um, reach uh, evangelical Christians about the need for us to stand up uh, and speak truth and um, get back to the authority of the Bible. I kept the article. I won't read it all. I'll just read you part of it. You can go on our website, click on my blog. There will be a link or on our Facebook page to read the whole article. I think you should read it. It's a good article. But it was, it was called The Disappearing Doctrine of the Evangelical Church by Mike Gendron. He said, and I quote, Professing Christians now think it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you label it Christianity. Their, uh, their only test for becoming a Christian is a simple acceptance of Jesus Christ as an historical figure. In our postmodern church, doctrine is out and tolerance is in. We are told that for the sake of unity, doctrine should not be tested or contested. We are not supposed to draw any definitive lines or declare any absolutes. Doctrinal and moral issues, which were once painted as black and white in the church, are now seen as gray areas. The state of the church is now, because of it, in a state of confusion. Paul forewarned us that this would happen in the last days when he wrote in 2 Timothy 4, the time will come when people in the church will no longer tolerate sound doctrine from God's word, but uh, wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth of God and be turned aside to myths. Gendron said when Christians, quote unquote, because we don't even know if they saved all of them, when Christians, quote-unquote, turn to popular teachers who tickle their ears with messages on self-esteem and self-improvement, they are also turning away from God's Word. Without a steady diet of Scripture, they will not hear sound doctrine and therefore be unable to discern truth from error. Ultimately, they will not know if they are following Jesus Christ or His adversary. 
Without discernment, the 21st century church is headed for serious trouble because the enemies of the gospel, Satan and his demons, are far more shrewd and cunning than we are. What the body of Christ needs now are soldiers of the Lord who are committed to battle for truth. Let us look at some of the causes for the lack of discernment in the evangelical church. And he lists a bunch of them. I'll just give you one. First one is decline of biblical teaching. He says, what has happened to pastors who preach the whole counsel of God? Churches that once taught the Bible verse by verse are on the endangered species list. We receive letters from our subscribers all over the world who can't find a Bible teaching verse by verse teaching church. We have also witnessed this firsthand as we listen to sermons on church websites. It appears pastors today are more concerned with popularity, church growth, methodology, psychology, and meeting felt needs than biblical doctrine. Pastors are teaching less and less from the Bible, which ultimately calls people to trust more and more in the words of men instead of the word of God. The decline of doctrine and ultimately the ability to discern occurs in our churches when any one of the three things take place. First of all, when drama and entertainment become more important than preaching the word. Secondly, when the pastor's goal becomes making people happy instead of holy. And you know this is taking place when he shifts his sermons from this is what God says to this is what I think people want to hear. And thirdly, when the pastor spends more time addressing felt needs over spiritual needs. Eventually, these churches become filled with gullible people who believe their lovable pastor is speaking from God, for God. Might they consider a quote from A.W. Tozer, who was no wallflower, quite a bomb thrower in his day. He said, gullibility is not synonymous with spirituality. Faith keeps its heart open to whatever is of God and rejects everything that is not of God, end quote. Gendron said in closing, we must recognize that all truth sets itself against error. Sound doctrine divides and confronts. It judges and separates. It reproves and rebukes. It exposes and refutes error. It leads us from the broad way to the narrow way. It commands us to submit to God and resist the devil. And he gives all the scripture references uh, for each of these. You can look it up your, on your own. It uh, exhorts us to discern between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It demands that we turn away from evil and do good. It tells us that our ways are not God's ways, nor are our thoughts his thoughts. It warns us against exchanging the truth of God for a lie. It guarantees that the righteous will be blessed and the wicked will be punished or will perish. He said, true Christians cannot continue to tolerate or ignore Satan's wicked schemes to weaken the church. We must stand firmly on, on sound doctrine. Heed the biblical warnings and live passionately for the truth so that Jesus Christ will be glorified and his church will grow in holiness and in strength, end quote. Look, I have been watching the church losing the culture war for a lot of years now. And I have come to believe that the only way this is possible, since Jesus said against his church the gates of hell will not prevail, is if the church isn't fighting. If we don't fight, we don't win. If we fight in the power of God's spirit, we will be victorious. But we are losing the culture war because so many Christians no longer think of themselves as soldiers. And because of it, they are, guess what? A-W-O-L. They aren't fighting the good fight of faith because Christianity to them isn't about serving the Lord. Listen, it's about the Lord serving them. In other words, they're not soldiers, they're consumers. And church is not a place where they go to get trained to be spiritual soldiers, to fight the spiritual warfare. It's a place they come to to be blessed, to socialize, to make business contacts, to be entertained through skits and high-powered Christian performers, maybe grab a Starbucks and lunch in the food court. 
Not that any of that is evil, but it is a distraction. It distracts us from what the church is really supposed to be. Turn to 1 Timothy 3. Listen to what Paul said again to Timothy, who was a young pastor. 1 Timothy 3, starting with verse 14, he said, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you are to conduct yourself, listen, in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Then he calls it the pillar and ground of the truth. The church of Jesus Christ, and this is, I think, a a phenomenal uh, definition. It gets right to the heart. The church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, when he calls the church a pillar, this is really an architectural term, one that I think would have spoken powerfully to Timothy since he was a pastor in Ephesus. In Ephesus, uh, in the city of Ephesus, there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana, a massive structure that contained 127 pillars. We know that a pillar holds something up. In this case, they held up the uh, Temple of Diana. So it was to support or hold up a structure. But in those days, listen to me, they often put a pillar up freestanding in a public marketplace, and they would put notices or announcements on it, like we would use a, a bulletin board today. So they put a freestanding pillar up in the marketplace and start, you know, pasting or whatever they did to hold it up, to start putting up these announcements or different things. In that context, the pillar became, listen, a proclaimer of something. The first thing we Christians are to be and do to be pillars. What does that mean? It means to hold up and proclaim God's truth to the people of this world. It's called the Great Commission. It's called the Great Commission. But also Paul says that we as the church of the living God are not just the pillars, but also the ground of the truth. The ground of the truth. The Greek word for ground suggests a bulwark. The dictionary defines bulwark as, and I quote, a solid wall-like structure raised for, listen, defense. As Christians, we are not only to proclaim the word of God, we are also to defend it against the attacks of the enemy. As Jude said, we are to contend earnestly or fight diligently for the truth of God. Defend it. In fact, in Jude 3, when he talks about we are to earnestly defend the faith, it's a reference to New Testament truth in general, but in particular to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to proclaim it and we're to defend it with every ounce of strength within us as soldiers of Christ. Author Warren Worsby said, and I quote, as a bulwark, the church protects the truth and makes sure it does not fall. When local churches turn away from the truth of God or compromise it in their ministry, then the enemy makes progress. Sometimes church leaders must take a militant stand against sin and apostasy. This does not make them popular, but it does please the Lord, end quote. Again, guys, Jesus promised that against his church, the gates of hell would not be victorious. Why? Because God's truth would keep us safe from Satan's lies. You want to protect somebody from the devil's lies, just teach them the truth. Do you realize how many lies are out there? How many false religions and cults? We could spend our our whole life learning about all these lies. But it wouldn't help you if you didn't know the truth, right? So rather, instead of taking all the time to learn Satan's lies, just 
take a lot of time to study the truth. They tell me, I haven't confirmed this, maybe some of you guys can, they tell me that when, that when a person is hired on at, I don't know, Fort Knox or the Federal Reserve or whatever it might be, uh, where they have to try to uh, identify counterfeit bills, they don't even let them handle counterfeit bills for the first few months. They just give them the real thing and let them look at it, feel it, study it so that they know it cold. So when a counterfeit bill comes across their desk, boom, right there, they, they know it. If you know the truth really, really well, God's word, when a lie comes across your path, you're going to know it. You'll be able to identify it. But only if churches are teaching God's truth. There's a lot of churches who are no longer feeding God's people on the whole counsel of God, which I believe is verse by verse. Look, I know that topical teachings could be a real blessing, and there's a place for them. But I believe that you also must incorporate into the teaching of a local church the verse-by-verse -verse teaching of the Word. Genesis Revelation, because if you're teaching verse-by-verse, -verse, you're covering the whole counsel of God. All of it. Stuff that you... It's fun to teach. Stuff that is not so fun to teach, but it's in God's Word, and here we are. We've got to go. It's a great thing because nobody can accuse you of... Did so-and-so call you last night, Pastor, and tell me you know, I was coming, that you tailored this message to me? No. We're just going verse by verse. Here you are. God brought you here. Okay? And uh, I didn't know anything about you. Didn't know you were coming. I'm just telling you what God has said. This is where we are. Verse by verse. Here we are. Okay? And here you are. Uh, so you have to deal with that. Okay? <laughs> but um, the truth will set us free. Keep us, keep us safe from Satan's lies. But only if churches are feeding their people on the word of God verse by verse. Okay, verse by verse. Because if not, they are going to be vulnerable to the enemy's attacks. Look, and we're, we're, we're done. But the reason the church is losing to the devil, for the most part, is because the devil has taken our weapons away. We've allowed it. I mean, what did David say here in verse 27? How the mighty have fallen, and what? The weapons of war have perished? Weapons, Right? Well, that reminds me of 2 Corinthians 10. In fact, why don't you turn to it, because you should highlight it. One of the classic passages on spiritual warfare. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. He said, for though we walk in the flesh. Okay, he's talking about being a Christian, we're physical, we, we live in these physical bodies. But we don't war according to the flesh. We are in a spiritual war. It's not physical. Um, we don't use uh, Apache helicopters and bazookas and AK-47s and so on to fight this war. It's a spiritual war, invisible war. He goes on to talk about our weapons. He says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not physical, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. You say, whoa, he doesn't actually tell us what they are. Does he have to? What are the only weapons God has given us to fight this spiritual battle? The word of God and what? Prayer. So obvious, Paul didn't even identify it here because he didn't feel he needed to. But the church has allowed the devil to take from us the word of God. People don't, so many pastors don't, they give a lip service, but they don't really trust it as, as being the, the word of God that can change lives and so on. And prayer, I mean, I've heard reports of churches that are 10,000 strong and call a prayer meeting and four people show up. 
Now, fortunately, in our church, we have fasting and prayer twice a year. Five days, Monday through Friday of that week, we do nothing but fast and come to the church to pray every night, Monday through Friday, break our fast with communion on Friday, and we, we can't hardly fit everybody into the room there because God has burdened us for prayer, and not just us. Any church that is filled with the Spirit and love the Lord will love His Word and will pray. That's His heart, and that's our heart. But there are many churches, many pastors who are not teaching their people the way they should. I'll have you turn to one more scripture, Hosea chapter 4. And folks, this is nothing new. It goes all the way back into Old Testament times. Hosea was a prophet during a time of great apostasy. And why was it a time of great apostasy? Well, I can't lay it all at the doorsteps of the spiritual leaders, but God sure does to a great degree. He talks about the priests at that time who were not teaching the people God's word, but were actually playing into their carnality and their desire to sin by teaching them things that build a big ministry, really. Listen to what God says to the prophet Hosea. Indicting spiritual leaders. We would say pastors today fit this into this. He said in verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of what? Knowledge. You think that fits today's church? Because you have rejected knowledge. He's talking to the priest now. You've rejected my word. I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, the word of God, I also will forget your children. The more they multiply, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. In other words, the priests were getting rich by telling people what they wanted to hear, playing into their sin. It's like today. How many people want to hear, uh, you know, die to self, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? Now, that's not a very popular message today. The biggest churches, many of them, God wants you wealthy, you know? carnality that's not really bad selfishness materialism that, that's good you're children of god you should want the best god wants you to have the best best car best house in the neighborhood prosper your business you tell people that's deal and your church gonna be full you're playing into carnality you're, you're feeding into the people's desire to uh, have materialism instead of being holy verse 8 they feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity it will be like people like priests. A congregation will very seldom if ever rise above the level of its, of its leadership. The leaders are carnal, the church is going to be carnal. The leaders are men of God, the church will typically be people of God. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will, not eat, they will eat and not have enough. They will play the harlot but not increase because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord, in other words, to his word. We're seeing that today, guys. Of course, the remedy, the solution is to return to the Lord, to repent. If we want a church, and I'm, I'm just speaking the church in general now, if the church of Jesus Christ in America wants to be strong and victorious, then it needs to repent. It needs to turn from this carnality. Get back to the Lord. Feed on his word faithfully. Here's a novel idea and do it. Feed on his word faithfully and do it. Start seeing yourself as a soldier and start proclaiming and defending God's truth. Social media is a great place to start. Many of you guys are already on social media. It's a great place to, in love, share the gospel, share the truth. Even when people are extolling the virtues of gay marriage, you can come in lovingly now, lovingly, 
and say, you know, I love gays too. Or this Orlando thing that was horrific, how horrible. I want to see gays saved. Start sharing just from the word. Some of the things God is, well, you're a bigot. You're, you're a homophobe. I'm just sharing with you what God's word says. But I don't hate gays. I love them. I want to see them saved. So social media is a great place to start. And guys, if we do these things, by God's grace, I pray that soon the cry of the church will not be how the mighty have fallen. It will be how the mighty have risen up and are victorious. Because that was God's desire and design for the church from its very inception, that we would be more than conquerors, that against us the gates of hell would not prevail. We would be an army of soldiers who love the Lord, marching forward uh, through the darkness with his light. That, that's what our heritage is supposed to be. May God give us grace to be the soldiers in these last days we need to be, to set people free from the power of the devil. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have used it to bring us to you through faithful men and women who shared it with us. Lord, we just picked up a Bible and started reading it, Lord, and your truth set us free. And now that we have your truth, Lord, now that we are your people filled with your mighty spirit, give us grace, give us boldness and courage and strength to go out into this dark world and be a light, to speak the truth in love to a world that's been bound with lies. Lord, we just thank you for your truth. It set us free. And Lord, forgive those who in the name of unity are embracing others, telling them they're Christians when they are not. Be with Roman Catholics, Lord. I know many in this room have Catholic friends, family members. We know they're not born again. We know they're not going to heaven. They have religion, but they don't have a relationship with you. Father, please open their eyes that your truth would set them free. And give us grace to proclaim and defend your truth in these last days for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen.